All right, amen. So what do we do? Love God and love others. What do we say? I love God and I love you. Amen. Bless you this morning. Uh, Pastor Jimmy just uh, walked away from here, but I'm actually going to invite he and Francis up, uh, speak a word to them, and then pray for them all together. So if they could come on up here, we're going to socially be appropriate here, get some masks on. Don't want to infect that beautiful baby. Well, soon to be beautiful baby. We assume it's beautiful because they're beautiful. Um, We just uh, love you guys. I can't express enough how much you mean to this church. Uh, You are our longest serving pastor (laughs) for the entire life of Jericho Road. You both have been ministering here. Um, You've ministered to every single person that's here. You've blessed my heart, our family. We are uh, better off in life. We are nearer to Jesus because of you both. And we just thank you so much, and we love you. Um, and I know so many people would love to be here to hug you and hold you and, and cry with you, um, but they can't because this 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 dumb coronavirus. Um, but we love you so much in our hearts, and we will be always hugging you. And we can't wait to see the baby when the baby comes. And um, just thank you guys for, for your heart for, for the Lord, for your sensitivity, for your kindness. Um, for the clear work of the Spirit that's in both of you uh, as examples and as, as friends, uh, as ministers, um, as people who are following God. So we just thank you so much. And if I could take a moment and pray for you. If you're, um, wherever you are, if you could just raise up a hand in a prayer of blessing over this family. Jesus, we just uh, come in and pray over this family. Um, we are forever altered because of them in a great way. And we thank you for their service. We thank you for um, what they do, but we also thank you for who they are. As they've followed you, we've been able to follow you better because we've been watching these amazing examples. And we bless them. We pray for this move that it'd be fantastic. That I know Pastor Jimmy sometimes has uh, some worries that, that try to push against his faith. But, uh, God, I believe in, in his big faith and that this is an exciting thing, not a scary thing. And I know that you have some amazing people, an amazing ministry that you want to do through them in Tennessee. There's some people in Tennessee that need them. And so we're just blessing them and sending them there. And I, and I just pray for them. Uh, pray for the, the housing and the jobs and uh, the baby come uh, in a healthy way and uh, that you just be watching over them. We just lift them up in your name and we thank you for them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you. Clap them. If you're at home, clap. I don't know if you type clap, clap. Thank you guys. We love you. So this is uh, coming to the end of their, I think, a month-long farewell. They've been Three weeks ago they had a farewell party, and then they said had farewell dinners, and now they're farewell farewelling. They actually have plane tickets. They'll be out of here uh, tomorrow. And so make sure to... Um, I don't know if they can always see the comments online, but uh, make sure to text them. If you don't have their number, then, uh, yeah, you have their number <laughs> for sure. Uh, go ahead and text them. Uh, bless them today. You can text them during the service right now and just bug them. And so his phone will, and her phone will be blowing up during service. That's okay. Today we're uh, going to continue on in our study here in Mark as we're talking about simply Jesus. And I want to just jump right to it. And uh, this comes from Mark chapter 8. Uh, During those days, another large crowd gathered. 
since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and they've nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they're going to collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? <laughs> Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground when when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also, and he told the disciples to distribute them. And the people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 people were present. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went on to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, in case you're wondering, didn't we just hear this narrative? Yeah, like two weeks ago in chapter 6. This had just happened not too long ago. And this is not a typo. It's not a misprint. Nope, Jesus does it again. And it's crazy because the disciples seem confused again. Like, can you imagine? Like, wait, where have we seen this before? All these hungry people. Where are we going to get food? And Jesus is like, are you serious? Can you imagine Jesus like looking at them, just hoping one of the disciples will say, hey, hey, Jesus, you miraculously provided before. Are you going to do that again? Like you'd think that, that he's just hoping that one of these disciples will recognize that he can absolutely do it again and not be surprised or confused when this happens. Hoping that they would see that his past faithfulness shows his desire to meet present needs but they don't. And then I look at them and I'm like, they're so dumb. But is that any different than us? How many times has Jesus come through in your life? How many times has he been faithful and taken care of you? Yet, we doubt in our current right now situation. How many times has that taken place? That God has absolutely been faithful. He's taking care of you, but you're facing something right now, and all of a sudden you can't even, you can't even think about it. Like you, you forget about all of the times in your life that he's been faithful to you when this moment of crisis or a moment of trouble comes, just like the disciples here. Early on in my Christian life, there was a, uh, a Christian mentor who, who told me to do something, and this was probably only about a year after I became a Christian. And it is such wise advice, and I do it all the time. He said, uh, what you want to do is every time God is faithful, plant a, like, a, a red flag marker in your brain. And maybe as you first become a Christian, you'll just have a couple. God's been faithful. He took care of my rent. Yeah, he took care of my books. I didn't have any money for books. Yeah, he, he got me some community to pray for me. And, and you start planting these flags where God has been faithful. And then after you've been a Christian a little while, you can look back in your times of doubt and see a sea of flags in your own mind. And so I've been doing that in, for my life so that I can remember his faithfulness. So that I don't get like the disciples and, and face a situation and like, well, I don't know what to do. I do know what to do because he's been faithful time and time again. So right after this, the Pharisees came up and they began to question Jesus to test him. And they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply, and he's like, why is this generation asking for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left him, and he got into the boat, and he crossed to the other side. They literally had just watched the loaves and the fish miracle. And then they're like, give us another sign, give us a sign, give us a sign. And Jesus says, you know what? No more. Now, this wasn't a friendly encounter. When, when, the, when the Bible says they came to test him, 
This word test is the same word that's translated tempted, as in the Pharisees tempted Jesus to perform a miraculous sign. Who else did that in Jesus' life? Satan did when he was in the wilderness. Satan tempted Jesus to do a miracle to provide for himself. And so this is the same sort of antagonistic relationship that we're seeing. And he refuses to do anything for them because nothing would convince them. Look, a closed-minded person won't change no matter what's shown to them. And if that's true for Jesus, who is the God of the universe, then that's true for you and I as well. So it shouldn't be surprising when it happens to us, and it shouldn't cause us panic, worry, or doubt. When you share Jesus with someone, if they're not open to it, don't get frustrated or overwhelmed or think that you've failed. It shouldn't be surprising when that happens to us. Because if they rejected you, think about they rejected Jesus when he shared with them in person and he accompanied it with miracles and they still rejected what he had to say. And so don't worry about it if people reject. Closed-minded people will reject no matter what happens, no matter what miracle is shown to them if they've decided to harden their heart against God. So the disciples, uh, so continuing on here in our narrative, (laughs) the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one of the loaves that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Then they got together and they discussed this with one another, and they said like, man, is he saying that because we have no bread? Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? He said, are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes, but you fail to see, and ears, but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? The answer is seven. He said, do you still not understand? Like, again, they missed the point. It's not about the bread. He could just make bread. They missed the point when he said he was trying to say that the Pharisees will act like a catalyst to mess up things of faith, to mess you up, to cause you to look at the world wrongly, to ruin everything if you're not careful. Just like a little pinch of yeast will make the whole bread rise up or puff up, so a little pinch of the yeast of the Pharisees will cause pride in your heart to rise up to cause you to look at the world in, in not a God way, but in the world way. So a tiny bit corrupts a large amount. And then Jesus asked them again, do you not remember? Look, their current understanding of situation should be based on having seen what Jesus has already done. Because we can always take the past faithfulness of God as a compass for what God is doing in the current situation, that God loves and he cares for you and he's demonstrated over all the past situations. And so we can remember that and take that moving forward. So I love this ending here where he's talking to them and he's saying like, hey, you remember the basketfuls and this and this and this? And then he says, do you still not understand? And it's amazing in the scripture because there's no answer. They're like, uh... (laughs) No, not really, right? They don't really understand. And the next verse just said, they came to Bethsaida. So Jesus just leaves it because like, he said, don't you understand? And they're 
just blank stare him like, uh, I don't know if you, uh, some of your teachers, ask any one of your teacher friends, like uh, when, when you ask a question to the students and they're totally lost, they just blank stare you like, what? Uh, uh. And so that's exactly what Jesus got. So he moves on. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and, and they begged Jesus to touch him. So he takes the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and he put his hands on him, Jesus said, do you see anything? And he looks up and he says, well, I see people and they look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the guy's eyes and his eyes are open. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And, and then Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Just head on home. Again, we have a really strange healing miracle, just like last week. And I, again, I don't know why, but we have this another strange miracle. And we have, again, the faithful interceding for a friend who is in need. What needs do you see in the people that are around you that you can pray for? See, that's what these people did. They came and they begged Jesus for something. When we beg Jesus, we call it prayer. And so what, what needs do you see in friends of yours' lives around you? Maybe, maybe you have a, a sick friend, like this, they had the blind friend. Maybe, maybe you have a sick friend, someone who's dealing with cancer. No, we have one at our church that we're praying for. Maybe you have people that you can beg Jesus on behalf of to heal. Maybe you have a friend that's going through a difficult time in their marriage where, where you can talk to Jesus about that. Maybe, maybe someone is not coping well with the coronavirus life. Maybe you see someone who's having a really hard time with this. Or someone who is hopeless in their current work or their, their current school situation, and you just see that. Because remember, if you see the need, then God is calling you to be the prayer intercessor for them to be their personal prayer person. Like if you've seen that need, you go, oh man, I see that person. Man, I see they're hurting. I see this. Then, then God is calling you to pray for them. Just like these friends did. They begged Jesus to help their friend. And if you see that need, God is calling you to be that person begging Jesus on behalf of someone else. So Jesus and his disciples, they go on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way they asked, they asked him, uh, on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And still others, like one of the prophets. Well, what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus warns him not to tell anyone about it. So there was a lot of speculation on how high up the totem pole Jesus went. Was he like just sort of a preacher a la John the Baptist? Or maybe he was even more important than that. Maybe he was like someone like Elijah, who was a prophet. Or maybe he was even bigger. He was like one of the written prophets, like, like Daniel or Ezekiel. How high on the totem pole did Jesus rise? But then Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? It's fine that the disciples know what other people think about Jesus, but what's important is what they individually think about Jesus themselves. And so he brings that question to them, who do you say that I am? And he asked the same thing for each of us. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we had that sermon, Who Is This?, where we, where we were challenged to think about who is Jesus to us, because just like them, we have to answer that exact same question. Now, Peter gets a lot of things wrong, but he gets this, he gets this one dead on right. He says, you are the Messiah. Messiah means Savior. Sometimes we say the Christ. 
like of the Old Testament where, where God was going to come and redeem and make things new and, and perfect things and, and God is going to come and reign and he's going to establish like amazingness. Peter says, you are that Messiah promised of the Old Testament. When we understand and we confess this idea, it opens the door to full life discipleship. Then Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, but then Peter takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and he looked at the disciples and he rebuked Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So here he starts to tell the disciples, exactly what's going to go on. He's talking about like, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to get killed, and here's the reason why. The suffering and death of Jesus was a must because of two great things. Because of man's great sin and because of God's great love. And the cross demonstrates both of that. While his death is the ultimate example of man's sin against God and the consequence for that, it's also the ultimate example of God's love for mankind by coming to pay that price. And a good old Peter, who had just been commended by Jesus, he jumps in, and now he jumps in and says something, and then he gets roasted by Jesus. And uh, Jesus calls him Satan, as in like having the same mind of Satan, doing what Satan wants, not what God wants. Now, now Peter got all brave, I think, because of his, his just previous correct answer about the Messiah. I don't know if you've ever been in class and Sometimes I've been in class when I was a student, and I didn't always understand what was going on. I wasn't always the strongest student. And, uh, you know, if I got a right answer, I'd be like, yeah, I got this, I got this. And the next, like, two, three, four answers, you get wrong, and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't got that, I don't got that. And so if that's ever happened to you, then you did a Peter. You know, like, you, got, you thought you were all smart, all brave, and then you get checked up. And so that kind of happens to Peter right here. And uh, Peter's rebuke of Jesus was evidence of what Jesus was just talking about. Remember he had said, a little leaven messes up the whole, the, the, the whole loaf. And this is what Jesus was talking about. Like the right heart, but, but the wrong understanding, uh, looking at it from the world's perspective, that's the problem. See, Peter was looking at it and saying, like, no, you're, the, you're the, the big, you're the king, you're the powerful, you're the strongest. And he couldn't imagine a suffering Messiah. And so Jesus is like, see, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You're seeing it from the eyes of the world. You're seeing it the same way the Pharisees. They're looking at things from their perspective of power, importance, and, and, and prominence. But that's not what Jesus is doing. And so he says, hey, you're looking at it like Satan is. With his, mind on the, with, with his mind on the things of men, Peter saw the Messiah only as the embodiment of power and strength, not as the suffering servant. And so we see that leaven at play if he's not incredibly careful. Then he calls the crowd to him along with the disciples and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they'll save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with all the holy angels. And he says to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now this is a really fire passage. I mean, 
We could probably go another 30 minutes of the sermon just on this if we're not really careful. And this is my personal, like, all-in passage. I see four things at play right here, four musts about being a disciple of Jesus. I'm just going to go over them really quickly. Let's look back at that passage. Then he calls them, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, that's the first must. You must want to be a disciple of Jesus. It can't be your parents' religion. It can't be because you were brought up this way in Christianity. It can't be because all your friends are doing it, so you're just kind of doing it. You've got to want to be a disciple of Jesus. You must want to be his disciple. That's the first must. The second must is, he says, you must deny yourself. No longer living for you and what you want, but living for what God wants and living for him. Denying means that I am no longer pursuing the things of myself, but I am pursuing the things of God. What I want in this life, what I want in a career, or what I want in a living situation, or my family makeup, that is secondary to what God wants. This is a big piece for us to say, like, look, God, I want to do not me. I want to do you. I'm not going to live in a way that makes me comfortable. I'm going to live in a way that makes you magnified. And they lead to different places. And if you want to be a disciple, you must deny yourself. And that will also allow us to live others-centric. If I'm not trying to just me, 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 then I can care about other people. Then I can actually do the mission statement. I can love God and love others versus loving just myself. So i got to deny myself. The third must we see is, he said, you must be willing to take up your cross. You must be willing to die for Jesus, literally. Like almost all 12 of the disciples literally died for Jesus in violent ways. The cross wasn't about religious ceremonies or putting up with some irritation in life. It wasn't about traditions or spiritual feelings. Look, the cross was a way to execute people. In the last 20 centuries after Jesus, we sometimes have sanitized or, or ritualized or even spiritualized the cross. But taking up your cross, it wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip. Jesus is talking 100% all in. He says, you want to be my disciple? You've got to say, I'm willing to literally die, to get executed, to follow you. And that's the last part. You must be willing to follow Jesus. Whoever wants to be a disciple, deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. Copy him. Imitate Jesus. Study him. Live as he lived. Jesus is the master blueprint for the, for the course of our lives. He is the person in which we want to model everything after. That's why I love this series, Simply Jesus. We're looking at Jesus. And what he does, I want to do. The way he acts, I want to act. Who he loves, I want to love. How he interacts with people, I want to interact. I want to copy Jesus. We've got to follow him if we want to be disciples. Then it ends with, what good is it? For us to gain the whole world, yet forfeit our soul. Like we must stand firm in Jesus, unashamed of him and his name. Now, saying that, it doesn't mean that we should be jerks. It doesn't mean that we should be mean or inflexible, but rather, it means that we should love. Most people think of following Jesus as conforming to the establishment, but actually, Jesus is calling us to rebel against the established order of this world. We're called to rebel against the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of our flesh and the fear and conformity to the world against the traditions of man. And Jesus encourages a slave rebellion. 
where slaves of sin and Satan and the world rebel against the masters. Look, it's an all-in stance. And the stakes couldn't be any higher. You can gain everything if you are willing to lose the temporary. By being willing to lose your life, you will save your soul. But you also live a much greater life. Would you remember with me all that God has done for you? Just think back over his faithfulness in all the parts of your life. Think back to all the times that God has come through. Even when you were unfaithful, God was faithful. Remember his love demonstrated on the cross. Remember he's calling you to an all-in life for him. And the rewards will be incredible. Let's worship that God that we remember now.